continuing our doctrine series today, and um, I have been tasked with um, regeneration. Regeneration is not a, a, a strange word nowadays. Um, we know it probably better as gentrification. There are some similarities. It's about chasing out the old parts of us that are bringing the neighborhood down and bringing in some new bits that will hopefully pick up the neighborhood and raise the price. So as believers, we are worth far more than unbelievers in the sense of we are precious and priceless before the Lord. So I'm tasked with two, two aspects of this, of this doctrinal series. And, um, and to some extent, I can, I can genuinely say that this will be part one. Um, I will be dealing with um, predestination in a couple of months as well. And um, there's a scary amount of content to, to kind of cover uh, over this. And, I, and, and to some extent, whittling it down has been, has been a task within itself. But I hope to do a good job of it because if I'm honest with you, I have, I have spent considerable amount of time on this issue. Um, a considerable amount of time. And, and, and somewhat fought through on it. So I pray you will hear me. It's not an easy subject to go through. We are going to be going through a lot of scriptures. Uh, and the reason why, when we're dealing with doctrinal or systematic theology or doctrinal theology, it is not good to have one scripture in which we build that foundation on. So uh, back in Easter, I, I, I mentioned uh, that Paul says something about the baptism of the dead. And so for some, for some people, Catholics in particular, they build a doctrine on, the, on, on the being baptized for the dead. But the problem is there's no other scriptures available in which we can verify what this is and what it does. So that's why good systematic or good doctrinal theology requires us to think a lot of things through and see what the whole counsel of God has to say on the issues. So... Uh, from 2012 to 2015, I had to go to college up in um, North London. And so I had to get a train. In order for me to get to where I was going to, I always had to get the Cock Fosters train on the Piccadilly line. No other train will do. I'm that far, going that far north. And it was interesting that during that time, I was reminded of an advert that I saw when I was, uh, I guess I'd best to say a teenager. And for those of you who were probably middle-aged or not, you'll remember that Paul Hogan used to do these foster ads. Paul Hogan is probably best known for his role as Crocodile Dundee. And so back in the day when he was a big thing, um, not just in the UK, but pretty much a, a, around the world, he was doing these ads for Foster Lager. And he's at a train station. So the, the ad goes like this. He's at a train station where he is uh, waiting for a train. And then another man walks up to him in a pace and says to him, a, a kind of a quaint Englishman, tweed Englishman, you might say, and says to him, do you know the way to Cock Fosters? And Paul Hogan says to him, drink it warm, mate. Now, some of you got that. Now, 
I never got that when I was a teenager. And for all the humor I got of Paul Hogan, I was kind of like remiss to the fact that that's not funny. Why on earth was that put out? I mean, I don't get it. And so traveling up to North London reminded me of these adverts. And in particular, it helped me to say, all right, let me go back to that advert because how do I get it? And then I got it. The way to cock or mess up drinking Fosters was to drink it warm. Now, a number of things have happened during that space of time when I first saw that advert and then to when I actually was going off on this train thinking about this advert. Initially, I wasn't a, a lager drinker. I am now. And I realized that one of the worst things you can do is drink it warm. <laughs> Another thing was that I probably didn't actually get Aussie humor. I got some of it, but I never got all of it. And Paul Hogan being the quintessential Aussie, I, I just didn't get the whole idea and how they, you know, what they call um, dialectics, how he used words, because at that point, cock never meant the same thing it did in the English language. What also changed as well was that I, I didn't really understand the use of the pun. Puns are, you know, ways of using language that sounds similar to actually make a point. It took maturity for me to be able to understand the simplest of things. It took experience for me to understand the simplest of things. And today when we're talking about regeneration, hence my own label with it and understanding what this actually means, it has taken maturity. I don't expect every single one of us to get it today, but I hope it will help you along the way, wherever you are, in understanding how salvation works. So we doing this doctrinal series here is, is basically based in that whole grand tradition of faith-seeking understanding. This is important. It seems boring when you hear, oh, we're going to do doctrine. But faith-seeking understanding is exactly where I was at. I, I, a number of years ago, I was in a charismatic church, a sister church to Pastor E, Pastor Rob's church as well, Rhema back in you know, the day. And I left because my Christian experience had run empty. The emotions and everything that was trying to trigger to move my relationship along, I realized that most of the catchphrases that I, I, I latched onto, I didn't really understand what they meant. And leaving helped me to go on a quest to seek understanding about what it is I actually believed. To find some real foundation. As opposed to just chanting the catchphrases, I'm saved by grace, I'm saved by grace, and not really knowing what that meant. First of all, turn with me to, to Titus 3. This is not my, uh, my main scripture today, so... But I just wanted to kind of use this as a basis in my run-up. Then I want to go to my main text. I want to pray. And then I want to kind of 
deal with this subject as, as, as the Lord sees fit, God willing. So Titus 3, don't worry if you're not there, write it down, you can have a look at it later. And it helps maybe to define what are we dealing with today. It says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works, for these things are excellent and profitable for people. That's Paul's definition of regeneration. And I think it's helpful we start there before we now turn to our main text, which is in John 6. So the regeneration is only used twice, Matthew 20, 19, I believe, and then here in this text as well. And it's the Greek word, palagensia. We can hear the word genesis in there, and that's basically what it is, the, the renewal of creation, the renewing of something else. So if you turn with me to John 6, I want to read from verse 60 to the end of the chapter, verse 71. So we've got Paul's kind of static definition of what regeneration is. And now I want to turn to what I believe is a live version. Like, how does this work out? And Jesus is showing in the characteristics of how, what people are doing, the difference and maybe a, a, a greater dynamic of how to understand what regeneration is. And he says this, And when many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, for the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. 
he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful to be here in your presence with fear of weather, better weather there, Lord God. But yet, Lord, here we are gathered, Lord God, according to your word, according to the Lord, that which you would have us do, to be gathered around your word, to be instructed, to, to be encouraged, to be nourished, the Lord, that we may know better how we may serve not only you, but Lord, one another. Help us, dear Lord, as we, we labor through, dear Lord God, your word, to understand how, how great a salvation we actually have. That, Lord, that we might glorify you all the more better because of the knowledge in which we have, dear Lord God. That our emotions will be engaged, that our hearts will be engaged to understand who you are and why you are worthy to be praised. Holy Spirit, have your way with us, I pray. Help me, dear Lord God. Help us all to engage with you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me put my cards on the table before I kind of jump in and, and, and kind of quickly break down what this text means and then go into some of the, the particulars. We're dealing with that highly contentious area of, of Armenian thought and Reformed thought about salvation. That means nothing to you, don't worry. I'm going to be able to explain that a little bit more. And it's been a hotbed. And it's even been a hotbed here back in the day. And I want to put my cards on the table and say that I began out in my Christian understanding very much within the Armenian school of thought. Very firmly. I remember it was um, at a, a lunch, you know, I know um, Rob and E will remember um, Colin from Set Free back in the day. I was there having lunch at his house and, and he was introducing me to this reformed thought and I remember that as pleasant as the food was, this de hot debate began. I was like, no way. God choosing, you know, that God choosing people and that people are kind of remote out of it, you know. I, I mean, and me not re you know, recently being saved, I very felt, very much felt like my emotions and my reason were engaged in the process of me becoming, a sa becoming saved. And as I used that illustration at the beginning, as the years went by, as I labored through scripture, as I was there, chipping away was this whole idea of my involvement in my salvation. Scripturally, just chipping away at that old idea that, you know, somehow I was clever enough to see the gospel for what it was. And it took time. I'm very much in the reformed camp, but I'm not without my sensitivity to those who still are within the Armenian camp of thought. It's not good to just jump on something without really believing it. You know, Romans 14, he says, anything done without faith is not good. We need to land there knowing fully well what I believe and who God is and just to believe it because 
well, you know, somebody you respect tells you it's so. It's us not being good Bereans, right? We must search the scriptures to see if these things are so. And so for that reason, I, I encourage you, don't worry. If you don't agree, please do get back to me if you need to understand anything I've done, you know, I've, 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 I've gone through today. And hopefully it will help me when I, later on when I deal with predestination by the grace of God. So let me quickly go through the text and then go back and then redig a foundation as to what's going on here and what I believe is going on here. Well, the hard saying in verse 60 is basically Jesus has just opened these guys up to the fact that you need to eat him and drink his blood in order to be a part of who he is. And so this is the hard saying that they said, we can't be a part of this. I mean, I'm a good Jew. We, we Jews are not cannibals. We're not, we're not going to eat our our saviour, our messiah, our leader. They were struggling. Verse 61 uses the term disciples. And the disciples is used to define those who follow Jesus. The reason why I don't go to people and say to them, I'm a disciple of Jesus, is that disciple is a neutral term. To say that I'm following Jesus, but ultimately don't have the heart to believe in him, is two separate things. A better term is, I am born again, or I'm a believer. Because it clearly defines where I stand. So in that sense, disciple is almost like just saying, I go to church or I'm a, a, around Christian people, or, I, or I'm interested in what Jesus has to say. And there's plenty of those kind of people around without really believing. And so that's why we should not be confused by the fact that God, Jesus himself calls them, or, the, or John himself calls them disciples. It's a neutral term. In verse 64, I know I'm skipping chapters, but like I said, I need to dig a, a better foundation elsewhere. And Jesus knows who is who. Jesus has the knowledge of God. He's, he is part of the Godhead. He is now saying, in his, I know who's who and who really is saved. And this is the difference between what we know as the visible church, what we see, and the invisible church. The Lord knows who are his. It is the church that is invisible is the only church that deserves the capital C at the beginning of it. Every other time we use the small c to define the church. Because who knows? Save the Lord. Who we are amongst ourselves, isn't it? In verse 65, he now explains how he knows this. And he tells us that the reason why he knows this is that to some of them, he knows that the Father hasn't granted the heart to believe. So he tells us in the previous verse, I know who's who, and not everybody who follows me is really part of, is part of me. And then he explains in the following verse how he knows this. My Father has no relationship with them. God has not done anything in their heart to change the way that they actually believe and see me. In verse 68, now we have 
from the, a statement from Peter, who, again, I believe is speaking for the rest of the disciples, save Judas. What I see is a clear definition of irresistible grace, a term that I will go on to define later. To where will we go? What else can, what, what, what do you expect me to do? I can only follow you. Irresistible grace. Lord, even when I am confused and I really don't know where else to go, yet, Lord, you illuminate my world enough that I know enough to say that I can continue on with you. So when hard times come, issues come, I'm still holding on because reality, the reality is, is that I'm actually so convinced that this is the truth. That even when I'm confused about what God is doing in my life, I still hold on. Verse 70, a, prob a possible problem text. Well, if Judas is called and chosen by Jesus, then to some extent, if we're going to use that phrase, many are called but few are chosen, we're going to say, well, but Jesus chose Judas. What's that all about? Is it now possible that people can fall away? Well, again, going back to verse 65 and how Jesus defines that, Judas was called in what I would say the passive sense. Verbally, he is called. Verbally, he is asked to join by Jesus himself. Here you are. Become part of what I'm doing. It is the Father who speaks into the heart that ultimately speaks into us in an active sense to awaken us to faith. So I can call somebody, like Jesus can call somebody, but it doesn't mean the same thing when God calls you. So we should not get that confused that somehow, somehow Jesus escaped. Jesus is passively has passively called him to be a part of his discipleship. But ultimately, if we look at verse 65, it is God who actively generates us to faith. Dealing with our, our text, and we'll come back to that towards the end. In order to get to grips with the doctrine of regeneration, we need to go all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis, and particularly Genesis 2. What happened at the fall? What happened at the fall? So we can all talk about, you know, um, our experiences, about what happens when, when, when people are evangelizing and how people come to faith and all the rest of it. But ultimately, when I want to deal with this issue, I want to take people back to Genesis. And believe me, I, keep on, I, I encourage you all, if you don't understand Genesis 1 to 11, most of the Bible will be a mystery to you. You might understand it, but to understand the beginning, the foundation of, what, of, of God's revelation to us, it will be lost. No Genesis 1 to 11. I am, I am convinced at this point in my life that we do not need to start at the Gospels in order to encourage somebody in faith. Because unless you believe that God is the creator, Jesus makes no sense. 
and we're trying to convince them that Jesus has saved them and they don't even believe that God has created the world. So when you say that Jesus is the son of God, it means nothing. We need to take them to Genesis 1. In the beginning was the word, or like John does in his gospel. He doesn't begin in Bethlehem. He doesn't begin even in Nazareth. In the beginning. If I need to, un- if these people are going to understand who Jesus is, they need to see him in Genesis. So maybe John's gospel is not a bad place to start if you have to. So there are those, when it comes to discussing this issue, from a foundational point of view, believe that Adam and Eve never really actually fall. So when we say the doctrine of total depravity, in other words, are we so depraved that we know nothing really of God? We may know stuff about the world and how things function, all the rest of it, and how to, quote-unquote, get to cop fosters. But do we actually really understand who God is? How, are we just fallen to the point where we, know can, we can no longer participate in Eden? In other words, so we have a, a kind of ostracizing from God. Or are we to, that even point, to the point where our reason cannot even reason why, who God is and why he, why he is there. Was it a complete fall or was it a partial fall? Those who believe that it was a partial fall believes that natural revelation, that is, that you can create arguments and say, well, look at the birds, look at the trees, you know, um, present various evidence about the, the, the fact that there is a creation, what they call cosmological, teleological arguments, ontological arguments. They believe, that you, you can point to that, and to some extent, we can convince people that they are set, you know, that, that there is a God and that uh, this God is concerned for them. You know, look at the beautiful trees, look how he cares for us and all the rest of it. And to some extent, without really turning to the Bible, that to some extent, we can convince somebody that God is real. That's the extreme school, that we are not totally depraved. And then people kind of slot themselves in between that to the point where the Reformed folk believe that we're so depraved that our inability to reason God rationally is part of who we are. And I think scripture supports that idea. So there are, as I said, there are two schools of thought. Let me kind of outline the Armenian school. Jacob Arminius. Um, also, we need to kind of lumber John Wesley within this area because I think he kind of articulated more of this idea of, of um, previant grace more than he did. But Jacob, I believe, believed, that, believed in total depravity. So he had been a Dutch man, and the, the Dutch tradition was very much reformed. But Jacob Arminius started to push against this Dutch reformed view and started to say that, oh, you know, I don't believe that I was not involved in my salvation. 
And he started to, this, this whole idea that I believe that we are depraved, but I don't believe that we're so depraved that we're unable to comprehend who God is. And so rather than go for a, a doctrine of regeneration, he went for what is called a doctrine of previent grace. Previent grace, or better, better said, it preceding grace. In other words, that, that grace in which we are, so, our hearts are softened, but it doesn't actually, it doesn't guarantee salvation. It's that softening of the heart, and all of a sudden we see Jesus, and maybe a little bit clearer than we did, because the business of our lives, God comes in and, and starts to work on our hearts in such a way that we are starting to soften, and, and as we are here in the altar call, just as I am without one plea, we are starting to feel, mm, mm, maybe this is real. The emotions are there. You don't know if you're going to die tonight. You don't know whether you're going to have tomorrow. I was there. Growing up in my dad's church and hearing the altar calls, I used to feel that, you know. <laughs> that desire to just run down the altar. It was just so alive. And to some extent, that's what fed into my understanding that that there was just that preceding grace that all of a sudden that you hear it and, and, and God is taking away the cobwebs of your mind and all of a sudden you're there. It doesn't guarantee salvation, but it's like this little clear moment. And we need to respond to it because we don't know whether it's going to be there tomorrow. Obviously, this was popular with Wesley because that's what he did. He traveled the world evangelizing and no doubt he saw this constantly. And preach this window of opportunity that they had right there, right now. Under his preaching and, and, and the songs that were sung. Great songwriter as well, remember the Wesleys. So there you are in this atmosphere. And so he, he preached what he knew. I see this opportunity before you. Are you going to take it? Will you choose Christ today? Because this might be the only moment you have to receive him. Now, having said that, what do I think is the problem with this? From my personal perspective. I think as much as it tries to hold the whole idea of, of, of the doctrine of depravity, that they, you have these moments of clarity in which you can respond to God normally, I think that it takes the notion of human reason to be reasonable too seriously, and it takes it too far. In other words, that basically, if left to myself and, 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 and all the other issues of my, you know, you know, my house issues and maybe all the things that cloud our, you know, our busy lives, that cloud our judgment, and then, and then God clears that space in our mind to receive it, that all of a sudden we just, there on our own reason by ourselves, we can make a decision for Jesus. That somehow that's all we need that little clearing of the way, and, and then we'll see reasonably who Jesus is. I don't think that 
helps us to understand other parts of Scripture. So this is why I now jump onto the subject of presuppositionalism. A, co- a, a term um, tr- attributed to a, a, an apologetic uh, theologian called Cornelius Van Til. And he believed that 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 is an unreasonable position to put us as human beings in, to say it simply. Bob Marley sang, um, none but ourselves can free our own minds in redemption song. Particularly talking about mental slavery. But that carries with it that weight of ourselves being at the center of what we do. And it's very, pre, it's very prevalent throughout our culture. Bob sings it. Everybody else pretty much sings it. It's your life. Choose what you want to do. And songs have such a big part, even as we sing them subliminally, in how we believe these things are done so. And in that sense, we have a weight of, 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 of the media that also clouds, I believe, the situation. And that's why I quote Bob Marley on that. It's so popular amongst black folk, right? Even white folk, make no difference. Everybody will pump it out. And we will sing these songs. It's only as I started to look at this, um, in particular when I was at college, looking at Rastafarianism, actually reading what these songs actually say, I started to go, good Lord, this stuff is scary. I said to you, look at the words of get up, stand up. Good Lord. How more anti-Christian can you get? Go and read it. Google the lyrics. So even as we're sitting there in the sun, basking in these rhythms, we are being subtly induced to believe something that I believe is prevalently a lie. So a person, so this is what Cornelius Van Til believed. He believed that a person never holds the knowledge of the things he knows correctly unless it is submitted firstly to the knowledge of God. My words, not his words. This is me summing up a man's apologetic approach. Well, where does he base that on from? Well, Proverbs 1.7, you don't have to turn there. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 21.30, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. So the argument of presuppositionalism is that none can come into an argument without a bias. This claim to complete objectivity that as, um, as Wesley and as probably Jacob Arminius would have thought it, that if we just clear the cobwebs of people's busy lives and give them an opportunity to see God on the bare facts, that they will choose him. The problem is, as the doctrine of presuppositionalism or as the, the idea of presuppositionalism expands on, is that you are you are believing that people are truly indifferent to certain things. We discovered <laughs> that I discovered this in a in a in a in a, in a, 
I guess you might say, a, a, an actual experience where I remember back in the days with we and the guys used to go out and eat. And, you know, I remember one time walking around the West End with a bunch of my bros. And we would say, well, what do you want to eat today? And everyone was like, oh, I'm easy, I'm easy, I'm easy. But as everybody kind of suggested certain places, everybody's like, no, 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 I don't want to eat there. No, 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 I can't do that. Not doing Nando's again. Not going Chinese. And it was funny because everybody said, I'm easy. I'm indifferent. Whatever. I'll go with it. There is no freedom of indifference. We are not truly sitting there thinking that, you know what, anything reasonable comes to me, I'll accept it. We have what we call dispositions. And there is no neutral ground on which we can really stand because, as Romans 1, 8, 1, 18 tells us, is that we are suppressing the truth all the time. Again, another doctrinal proof. We are suppressing the truth. In other words, even if God was able to clear all the busyness out of our lives, we are actively suppressing the knowledge of God. And for that reason, we would not choose to believe. Given the opportunity, we would not choose to believe. And I'll go into more of the reasons as to why that is so. There's no neutral ground between partisans. Let me give you another illustration about this. And this is something, again, I've, I've actually heard. I, I don't want to quote these, these brothers specifically. But I remember um, a Liverpool fan and a Manchester United fan arguing these things. And um, again, which team has the greatest legacy? And surprisingly enough, I've had this, heard this conversation numerous times over the years. Both partisans. So we've got the Liverpool fan arguing that European championships is what really matters. And the Liverpool fan said. <laughs> then you've got the Manchester United fans who will say it's league championships that really matter. And the Manchester United fan said. When describing the legacy of what makes a great football team, we are not, depending on who we support, we are biased. Listening to both of these parties, they were never going to have a neutral ground in which they could say, this actually is more valid than that argument. Our partisanship means that we really actually are not biased in the argument. The problem is, is that when we're dealing with these kind of issues, is that we don't often wear the shirt on which we're supporting. So if I'm an atheist, I don't necessarily come out and say, oh, I'm an atheist, and here's the shirt, and I'm, uh, uh, you know, atheist united. I'm black consciousness, I'm, you know. That's what I do. Whatever our partisanship is, we don't often let it come out straight at the beginning. So there's no neutral ground. Romans 3, 10 to 12 says this, as it is written, 
None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Psalms 14, 1 to 3 says this, The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man. He sees that there are, and, and to see if there are any, any who understand, who seek after God. Any who understand. Let me go back to that. Any who understand. Who seeks after God. They have all turned aside together and they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. What I see through the Council of Scripture is that we are all partisans with the serpent, along with Adam and Eve. We believe in our claim to autonomy. And we carry with that as the seed and the legacy of the serpent within us. I am not disposed. I am not neutral on the subject of God. I prefer my own autonomy to a God who is in control of all things. So the problem with the Armenian line of thought is that the human reason or the heart can respond logically to God. Again, this claim to indifference. That basically just clear the business out of people's lives, as I say, and that people see the facts as they are, the evidence is in, and then everything will work out. That person will see God, and they will make a beeline for him. Presuppositionalism, at the contrary to that, believes that the heart, is not geared that way. The human heart, the human reason is not geared towards this presumed logic. It doesn't mean, it was funny listening to some of the arguments of, um, of, of countering presuppositionalism. It's always good to, to engage with these things because it's like said, you know, so people are arguing this. Oh, well, that means you say, you're saying that people can't know anything. Well, no. But as I read from Proverbs, it says that if Proverbs itself, that revelation is, is so self-evident. They said it's a circular argument. And yeah, they're right. It's a circular argument. If I don't understand that premise, that the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that all other premises that begin, he says that basically even the wise man, even the person with multiple PhDs is a fool. If he doesn't hold his maths as being under the, under the weight of the fact that God has created maths. He can know that two plus two equals four and know that, quote unquote, accurately. But then the problem with the mathematician is that he goes out and then he says that ultimately at the center of the universe is maths. In other words, he holds his maths knowledge incorrectly because he sees it as the center of the universe. That's what presuppositionalism means. It doesn't mean that you can't know how to make a cup of tea. It just knows, it just says that if you don't know that God has made the, 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 the herbs that make the tea bag and that God has made you and that all you, that even as you're making it, you don't make it 
with the correct knowledge that it's by God's grace you've done so. So that's what it means to say that we all hold knowledge incorrectly if we don't have it under the knowledge of God. And what we really see, as I showed you with the mathematician, is that ultimately we make these things in which we believe in the gods. I worship the God of chocolate. I worship the God of cars. I worship the God of my football team. I worship... We are constantly making our idols because we are not submitting that stuff to the knowledge of God. So the things that God has placed in this earth for us to enjoy... Most human beings hold incorrectly because they believe that these are things that they have deserved and earned and entitled to and are there and they assume that these things have just evolved out of nothing. So this is what it means that they hold knowledge incorrectly. So we do not hold knowledge of God correctly. And why is that? What is this war that's going on? And now take us to the understanding of the creature-creator distinction. When I do not submit to the fact that I am a creature made by God, I am created things, then we start to hit against this whole idea that my autonomy is under, is under threat. This is this, so this notion of I need free will to make me feel human. I need this, I need that, my, that, that I am my, my own person. I need this because this is what really makes me happy. Not realizing that basically, as I said, it's the culture behind you telling you that this is so important to you. And that you push behind you this whole notion that you are a creature created by God. I am not my own. God is the only truly absolute free person. The triune God is the only free person. He is the only real person if we want to become technical. It's taken me a long time to get to that place. So I'm saying this, not realizing how difficult that can be to absorb. But when you think it through, when we think about what it is about personhood and about what it is to be free to do whatever I want to do, then the only person I can really see who fits that description is God. So when I put my hands up and says, you alone are worthy, when I say that now, in the songs that I sing, I sing it with a knowledge that yes, he really is the only one who is worthy. It makes my praise and my worship better. I'm not saying it like he's, he's worthy, like, like, you know, the queen is worthy of praise, worthy of honor, because she's a person like me, but she stands on a little bit higher. God is not higher. He is in a league of his own. And when my worship flows from that knowledge, it's beautiful. Because, Lord, you're the only true person. I am your creature Honouring who you are.
And because of my dispositions, I cannot control many aspects of who I am. Health issues aside, all the rest of it. I cannot like Marmite unless the by a will of God. I cannot sit and put that on my toast and eat it and think this is really great. But that's what indifference tells us. I can like it if I want to. But the reality is if my heart's not in it, I will smile. But really inside I know I'm cringing. I have no freedom to choose the things I like. And no doubt you've discovered foods and whatnot that you don't like, which you don't understand why. When you see other people enjoying it. The one that gets me is people not liking spicy food. (laughs) So in, in Romans 9, Paul has a lot to say about human claims to freedom. And over and against God. This is what he says. I'm going to read it at length. Please follow. It is Romans 9, 14 to 21. It's not the complete chapter, but it's the part that I think is important for us to understand. And so Paul says this. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. You say to me, then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Paul's question demands to be answered. Is the artist not free to create whatever he wants? Or are we going to become liberators of paper and canvas? Or clay? Liberate the clay. Give it its free will. Let it do whatever it wants to do. Where I stand, that's what we're doing. Lord, it's not fair that you, the artist's hand has only uh, gone over that part of the paper. In a truly fair society, this is some of the ideology going on in our schools today, in, it's only in a fair, all of us need to have a fair shake at it. Down with grammar schools. Let everybody have a fair shake because we all deserve, so in other words, if God is really going to create, he should just create blackness on everything. So that everybody feels that they're touched by God. But when you step back from Romans 9, God is drawing a picture in salvation, a picture to himself. That's why the glory that we have as believers, because the artist has touched our lives, 
isn't down to us to say, well, look at me, I'm so great and wonderful. The glory is his. So when at the end of time and the world is peeled back and we see the picture that God has created, the negative spaces and the positive spaces, those who are saved, those who are unsaved, we will see the picture of salvation the way I believe Paul does in Romans 9. Even the unsaved are created for the glory of God. The negative spaces that he has to see the picture. So in one sense, what we're doing is we're taking a a horizontal argument of, of equality and fairness amongst ourselves and we're trying to wrestle with it and try to transfer that to a vertical argument where because we're not good students of Genesis 1, we believe that we have very good grounds in which we can say to God, you are not fair that you have made things the way that you've made things and that we're completely dependent on you. If we read Genesis 1 and miss the fact that we are created by God, this is, a, this, this is where you'll end up. We're not created and then wound up and says, you go and do whatever you want to do. We are created within the world in which God rules. The Satan's temptation was that we can make up our own rules. You can be like God. You can be autonomous. You can be free to be whoever you want to be. Don't just listen to God's rules. If it looks good, eat it. This is the argument. And again, like I said, if you're not a good student of Genesis 1 and you understand that premise, this will go over you and you will be completely oblivious of it. When I understand, as much as I'm a living, breathing man right here before you now, feeling that my life is my own in some ways, if I don't understand I am a created thing, This whole idea of who God is is going to be lost on me. I'll just see him as a bigger being, a bigger human being like me. Paul begs the question, who are you? One of the things I wanted to kind of highlight here, it's interesting that when we talk about morality, that so so often the first three commandments become irrelevant. And this is the reason, when we look at the six commandments, and not just within the context of the church, um, but outside in the world, it's how we treat one another, which is more important. It was the problem of the rich young ruler as well. But when Jesus now tells him about sell all years and submit to God, that's where he had the problem. We're very mindful about what we are. We shouldn't lie to one another. We shouldn't murder one another. We shouldn't do all these things because our rights, our human rights are so important that the first three commandments don't even get a look in more often. We're not shocked when people are worshipping idols. We're not shocked when people don't keep their promises and take the Lord's name in vain. 
We're shocked when people are not, when God is not first. If somebody came up to you, and I know this is based on our experience, and I'm in an environment where that can happen, and somebody says to you, I'm a murderer, murdered numerous people, to some extent that will shock us and put us on defense with that person. That same person says, I'm an idolater, I worship this and I worship that. It doesn't shock us. The morality of the Ten Commandments doesn't rest on just how we treat one another. It matters how we treat God and God's rights. And to some extent, we are oblivious to the fact that our rights do not stand or are contingent upon God's rights. I've given that good thought. Why does not, why do the first, and the, the fourth commandment I believe stands in the middle, the Sabbath of between heaven and earth. It's where heaven and earth meet. But I'm, I'm genuinely looking at that as a next train of thought. Why does the morality of the first three commandments not seem to matter? Our ethical and moral behavior depends on those more than they depend on the six, how I treat one another. Because if I don't see God correctly, I won't treat you correctly. Other terms that we need to conserve, but I will not go into there, is Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, synergism, which is the, you know, uh, so Pelagianism is the belief, is, is based on Pelagius, uh, a fourth century monk who believed that um, it was works alone. You know, if you want to search him up, please do. Um, I have no time to go into that there. Semi-Pelagianism is where uh, most Armenians um, stand, um, and synergism so synergism is, uh, is what we see. It's the whole idea of God working and our, our working, both in one. And that's the same thing as semi-Pelagianism. Is that there's a, they believe that there is a synchronicity of, of, of me and God working together to accomplish salvation. And then counter to that is what they call monogism, which I'm going to go into now, which is it's a work of God alone. So let me go through the Reformed position. I know time is running out, but please bear with me. So the doctrine of regeneration is, is a Reformed view of what salvation is. And this is me getting to the meat of the matter now. And it runs counter to previent grace as it takes the total depravity of humanity to be so fatal that we do need a work of God in order to be awakened. Why is this important? Because... I believe when you are spiritually dead, it means that. Ephesians 2.1 says that, Paul says that we were spiritually dead. And then we see this term, particularly in John's gospel, of being born, of being awakened, of being born again. Paul then picks up this phrase himself in his own letters and starts talking about being born again. Being born, from its, the very use of the word, expresses passivity. How many here chose to be born?
when doing theology, it's more important to understand why do they use that word as opposed to this word? So when I talk about being born again, why do they use born again and not convinced? I was convinced of the gospel. Why? Word was available. Why did they use born of God? When I use the term born, I'm completely aware because I know that I've been born. I am completely out of the equation. John 1, 9, 13 says this, The true light which gives light to everyone has come into the world. He was in the world, and the, light, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What place did John give to the will of man? Zero. Zero will. There is no denying of the utter passivity of a baby being born, as opposed to an adult activity of, of as Nicodemus suggests, of going back into his womb and being born. And that's the carnal way in which we try to comprehend the doctrine of being born again, of regeneration. Is that, well, can I go back into my mother's womb and be born again? Well, no, Nicodemus. You have to, it happens by a will of God. He awakens you from spiritual death. Jesus himself had to know, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know this? One of the implications of, a, of the doctrine of the regeneration is, it is a, as it is a complete work of God, it is completely effective. In other words, if God hits you, he don't miss. You know, you've got all these uh, snipers who claim, I can, you know, I can take the world's trajectory and, you know, I can hit you from a mile away. And God don't miss. He who began a work in you is faithful to complete it. Therefore, irresistible grace is effective to bring about genuine faith and works, sanctification that is, motivated by gratitude to the free gift of God. When we understand this, when we understand the free gift of God, our gratitude grows. Free gift isn't like how when I was a kid and debated the fact that Mom, Dad, if the toy in, you know, and I noticed that they don't do the toys in the cereal packets anymore, so some of you might be lost on this, but when I was a kid, you always had toys. And what I used to do is I used to sneak down in the middle of the night because I had, there was six of us. So when the cereals were bought, I used to sneak down in the middle of the night because initially it was, realistically, it was the first, whoever, cereal, whoever cereal bowl it falls out into, that's the person who gets the toy. But I used to go in there, <laughs> go back up to bed. But I used to 
say it. And back in there says, but mom, they say it's free, but I have to buy the cereal. This is my argument as to why I have to steal it. <laughs> there is no purchase required for the free gift of God. Like we see attached to all these things, you know. Buy one, get one free. It's not free. It's right. It's, it's the contingent on purpose. And this is what I believe is the problem of the doctrine of prevent grace. I need to buy, and then God gives. Why is the grace and free gifts of salvation so important? I believe that this doctrine sets Christianity apart from every other religion. Every other religion has workspace somewhere or another, whether even the non um, the, the non-God ones, Buddhism. When we insist upon this, I believe, like with Islam, like with um, Hinduism, that to some extent, my involvement matters. As in Hinduism, I will never get to samsara if I don't live a good life and, and just humbly accept my position and go through life, and that I will never get to nirvana. Eventually, as I go through samsara, I will never get there. As with Islam, I, if, I, if I'm not doing my five prayers, I'm not doing my ablutions and all the rest of it, I will, I will never attain to God's, God's interest in me. If we are to hold the uniqueness of Christianity as truly different from every other religion, then this is what we can't miss that we because we believe that he is the creator he does everything for us because he is that type of person then all of a sudden we are now free to worship him through gratitude as Adam and Eve were supposed to do Lord I'm not worried about the tree I can't eat from I'm just thankful that you've made me in this world and I'm grateful for what I have I don't have to work to enjoy the world in which you've given me. I don't have to work to enjoy eternal life. I don't have to do all this. All I have to do is just sit and accept what you've done for me. The problem when, when we, 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 we opt for this our alternative is that Christianity is diminished and becomes another form of all other world religions, which is work-based Paganism, back in, the, in you know, ancient paganism believed that the gods created um, humans to, to serve them. To some extent, there's this whole idea that um, the gods created because they were getting tired and they created humanity and then all of a sudden now we have to serve them. Hence, they put the food there, they fed them, um, they gave you their children and, and, and said, there you are, be happy gods. And we can take that similar view that God somehow needs us. But to coin a phrase, I think this is what the God's God. Because now our exist his existence is now dependent upon our existence. And if we weren't there to worship him, somehow he would not be who he really is. In other words, we're making him who he is. So 
So I believe that because we, are, you know, we need to contend with this unscriptural view of human autonomy, trusting God is to be total as a baby is dependent upon his parents. Ultimately, having kind of gone through the bulk of this, we need to understand that God is the only adult in the room. He's the only mature person. We are dependent upon him in an utter sense. What's the takeaway? Ultimately, we have no room to boast. The biblical testimony is unanimous to show that all those who are called by God are hopeless to fulfill the course of action without God. Look at Abraham, called to be the father of many nations, called at the age of 100. Abraham couldn't boast because of his virility. He knew that at the age of 100, that he gives birth to Isaac through Sarah, that that was a complete work of God. What about Moses? Lord, I can't speak. I have an impediment. I can't go and tell and proclaim this truth, this message, who has made man's mouth. The hopeless Moses is made to succeed because of who God was. So when Moses steps into Pharaoh's court, Many years after he had left, he stands there completely hopeless. Unlike the Moses that was trying to kill every Egyptian one by one until all of them were free. He was a complete work of God. And to, to add injury to insult about how it wasn't, how am I going to accomplish all this? What is in your hand? My rod. With your rod, I will... Do all these wonders. Sticks are not like magic wands in, 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 in Harry Potter. He is saying that even, with, even if it's just you and a stick, I will complete this work so that you will not boast that it was you. <laughs> what about Ruth? An outcast by virtue of even Moses' decree that no Moabite will ever enter into the, 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 the people of Israel. Comes completely helpless, ready to, to come back to Israel, with, to Judah, to, with uh, her mother-in-law, Naomi, with, knowing that there is no hope that any Israelite man will ever really marry her. Let alone look favorably upon her. Yet she becomes the great-grandmother of the king of Israel. Ruth couldn't boast. What about David himself? Who wouldn't lift a sword against Saul, in other words, to take it, as commonly was known, by killing your predecessor. David says, God has to give me the kingdom. David had all the means, all the military might, and two great opportunities to kill Saul. Yet he said, the kingdom has to come from God so that I won't boast that it was by my hand that I got these things. 
The church is an unlikely gathering of people with the only common denominator being that we are all here by the grace of God. It's not because of our social status, not because we've got some great acumen. Not because of our attitude or temperament or special knowledge that draws us together in him, as the following scriptures alludes to. Deuteronomy 7, 7 to 8. It says this, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people, but it is because the God loves you and keeps the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Deuteronomy 9.6 says this, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not given you to this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Ephesians 2, 1-9 says this, And you were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you, were once, which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we are all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in in Christ Jesus. For by grace... You have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What we see from one end of Scripture to the other is that God's election through regeneration is completely without merit, and as such, excludes boasting. If I'm even as far as Paul, as Moses are concerned, if there was a little bit of me that God liked, as I will deal with this in predestination, is it, is, if there's something he saw good in me from the distance that made him give me this, we do not have a faith without boasting. I'm going to be honest with you. I could say somehow this is synergistically me and God working together in harmony. And so to some extent, grace really isn't grace. Because I'm involved. I have earned it. The doctrine of regeneration is humbling and gives no praise to human pride. But rather than being disconcerted by this, we can be encouraged that our childlikeness and dependence on our God and our creator actually puts us in our proper place. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31 says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even, that, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Do you see what I mean when it will transform our worship? Our complete dependency upon God. Lord, you alone. For our reflection, I turn to the response of the disciples in John 6. When faced with the confusion of what Jesus was saying, they didn't understand him. God, you want me to be a cannibal? <laughs> Lord, well, even at a point when we are wrecked and unable to understand the statement of our own master, they are nonetheless convinced that the way of truth is still on his side. That's why I chose John 6, because that's what I constantly come back to. When I find myself struggling, I find the irresistible grace that, Lord, who illuminates my world the way that you do? I don't understand everything you're doing. I don't understand why this is happening in my life right now. But you know what, Lord? I know that you are good. And I stand on Romans 8.28 that all things work together for good for those who love Christ Jesus. The love that he would later on go to say in verse 30 as we read along, the love that he has put in me for him. A complete work of God. I stand like them at times in my life saying, to where will I go? When people fall away, I, 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 I'm curious, as I've, I've, I've said numerous times, I'm curious to where you're going to go. Have you found something better than my Savior, my God, who freely gives me all things? Who didn't even spare his own son? Who? Where? In conclusion, I believe humility is as essential to salvation as pride was to the fall. It should come to us as no surprise that the way back is to undo this error. If pride was, was essential to the fall, if my claim to autonomy, my claim that I don't need to submit to my creator is so important to us, then you won't get this. If my involvement is, is that important. But if I believe that in humility, that God is the creator, that I need him in order to understand these things, then humility becomes central to all that I believe in Christianity. So that in coming back, it's only through a complete act of humility that I can say, thank you, Lord, for saving me. Let's pray. Lord, these are difficult things, Lord, to, to consider. We might even say, like at the beginning of, of, that, of our passage today in John 6, 60, these are hard things. But Lord, bring us back to the beginning. Bring us back to what it really is, who we really are in relation to you. 
We stand in the midst of this culture, dear Lord God, that has its own ideas about what it means to be a human being. And hence they create law courts for human rights and all the rest of it, dear Lord God, which are so good in so many ways, dear Lord God, because it helps us to navigate our way with one another, dear Lord God, and to treat each other fairly. But Lord, so often that those human rights, actually we transfer them to our human rights towards you, our God. And we are like that raging man in, in, in Romans 9 saying, but God, why does he find fault? Lord, teach us to humble ourselves before you. Teach us to accept that regeneration is a work of you. That, Lord, being born is, is again, you awaken us to faith. And no doubt, Lord God, I pray that this will help us in the struggle as we, we long for loved ones to come to the knowledge of you. Let us pray, Father, that you will help them to be regenerated, dear Lord God. That you will, you will do those things which our words can't do. As much as we work hard to articulate the gospel in ways, dear Lord God, that is understandable, Lord, yet we pray for the work, that, Lord, that you will do, that you will turn the heart to you so that those will believe. Help us, dear Lord God, in that sense, it's not, we suddenly realize that God, even in that context in our evangelism, it's not so much about our words to people, dear God, but our prayer to you. Help us to be praying people, dear God, praying for the salvation of those who are lost, that they, we will turn hearts to you so that we can go out there, dear Lord God, like fishermen, passing our nets, dear Lord God, and as they hear the gospel, they'll understand. Our words will make sense to them doesn't discourage us from evangelism it realizes that lord you probably need more prayer that you will season hearts as you do because as i read in acts lord god it was you who chose those people that were saved on particular days as many as you saw to add to the church as we proclaim lord you change the heart have your way in us i pray help us to be transformed dear lord god in this new knowledge or maybe even just old knowledge that we've been reminded of today. That, Lord, being a Christian is a humbling thing. That we stand as creatures before our creator, the Lord God. Lord, touched by your hand, that we might bring you glory. Please, the Lord God, help us to understand this. And be transformed by this truth, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.